0: Thank you. That song bring back any good Cademan's Call memories for anyone in the house today? Two of you, yes, yes. Well, hey, my name's Ryan, and um, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm back after a week in Costa Rica, a little bit over a week in Costa Rica, and I'm back because they already have a pastor in La Iglesia de Costa Rica, unfortunately. And I missed you guys so. Um, We had a wonderful trip. I'm sure my face shows a little bit of the Shekinah glory of the Lord that we experienced there. But hey, if you have your Bible open to Jonah, Jonah chapter three is where we're going to be camping out today. And let me give you just sort of a bird's eye view of where we've been. If you've missed any of these messages, I'd encourage you hop online. The book of Jonah is a whole story um, of the life of Jonah or a portion of the life of Jonah. And you sort of need one step and one phase to build on the other. So um, hop online and and sort of fill yourself in on the blanks that I'll leave out. Jonah is a prophet of God, prophesied in roughly the 8th century BC. He was a contemporary of Amos and Hosea. They were both prophesying at the same time. Amos and Hosea had a harsh word for Israel. Uh, They said that Jeroboam II was using his militaristic might and power in order to expand the empire, and they were not okay with that. Jonah, however, was just fine with that. He wanted to see Israel expand at any extent and in in, in any degree, and he was happy with however that happened. So this is the book that we have of Jonah's quote-unquote prophecy. In many ways, the book is more prophetic than Jonah. And we're going to see that today as it's going to sort of come to light. The first chapter of Jonah, we saw that God gave Jonah a call as a prophet to go to Nineveh, which is on the, almost directly east of where Jonah was. And what we see is that Jonah goes directly west. He goes and runs from the place of pain and brokenness in Nineveh to pleasure and tropics, praise be to God, in Tarshish, okay? Okay. And we said week one, it's often easier to run from God than it is to trust God. Anybody want to say amen to that? Yeah, when we run, we get the perception of control. When we trust, we have to surrender. And Jonah is met in his running with a storm. And the storm is harsh and the storm is difficult, but rather than being a punishment for Jonah, the storm is actually God's pursuit. God refuses to let Jonah continue to run, and continue to, to be disobedient, he confronts him and starts to call him home. Larry Boatwright did a wonderful job last week teaching on Jonah's prayer in the belly of a fish, and, and Larry reminded us that it's often those moments of rock bottom where we're start to, we, we, we start to be reborn, isn't it? Where God starts to save when we feel like we've entered the grave, right? Right? And today we pick up the story after jo- Jonah is, quote, vomited out upon dry land, like you are, okay? Big idea of the book of Jonah is that a resentful prophet meets a relentless God. We're gonna see a piece of God's relentless nature today. Verse 1, chapter 3, Jonah. You there? No shame in using the table of contents. Jonah's small. He's buried in the minor prophets. They're minor, not because they're unimportant, but because they're short, right, short. Okay, here we go. Jonah chapter three, verse one. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Say that with me, a second time. This is a picture of mercy. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it and the message that I tell you. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, just a quick time out, does this sound familiar to anyone? Arise and go to Nineveh. It, it should, if we've been here, this is almost verbatim what God said to Jonah in chapter one. Remember, we said week one that Jonah is both prophetic and poetic, it's, it's beautiful in its literature. And there's this sort of this ebb and this flow and this rhythm that we're supposed to see that, that, yes, this is like a rebirth of sorts that Jonah is experiencing. And instead of saying no, like he did first time around, Jonah says what? Yes. yes. Begrudgingly, Yes. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. Now, how many of you guys have a little note there in your Bible, maybe one or something right next to that word, great city? Uh, and if you go back and you read the note at the very bottom, a lot of the scholars will say, yeah, uh, Nineveh was a great city or a very large city in the ESV is the way it translates it, and it took three days to go through it. Now, archaeology and archaeological discovery would say that Nineveh was around seven miles in circumference. That's what this is, right? Okay, diameter, (laughs) circumference. Around seven miles. Now, unless Jonah is really, really slow, he could make it seven miles in one day, could he not? So a lot of the scholars will say, and I don't think they're wrong, that Nineveh was not just a large city, which it was by ancient standards, it was also a very influential city. And in an influential city, you had a methodology by which you entered it, especially if you were a prophet. Day one, you would enter, day two, you would be received with hospitality, and day three, you would leave. And what we see in Jonah is that he doesn't have the chance to get all the way into the rhythm of the city of Nineveh before he preaches and before the people start to respond. Verse 4, look. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. That's it. I mean, all this pageantry, right? Like Jonah runs, Jonah's swallowed by a fish, Jonah's barfed up onto dry land, Jonah's finally called to go. And when he goes, he preaches in the Hebrew, it's five words. Five word sermon. And we're supposed to sort of go like, <clears throat> Jonah, like, anything else? Hey, go, go just flip over a few books to the right and just look at the prophet Nahum's prophecy against Nineveh. That's how you prophesy against the city. It's the entire book is his prophecy. Jonah's got five words. You're going down. And so scholars have wrestled with this. Like, what are we supposed to make of Jonah's quote-unquote prophecy? It's fairly lackluster. It it lacks most of what you would assume a prophet of God would deliver. Who's the prophecy from? We don't know. What are the people supposed to do? We don't know. What are they on the hook for? We don't know. Five words. That's it. And I wrestled with this. And I think we have two options. First, I think that this could be what we could term prophetic sabotage. So Jonah's barfed up onto dry land and he goes, God, you're going to send me again?" Fine. Now, if we have kids, we know this face, don't we? I will do what you say, but I won't like it, and I will do the minimum requirement, okay? I'm not going above and beyond. I will begrudgingly drag my feet and I will do it. Check. It is done. Thank you very much. Give me credit, right? So. That could be one way of reading it, and to be honest with you, I read it that way for most of my time studying this text, and until I started to see, I don't know that the narrative arc of this account demands that we only read it through the lens of Jonah, which I think that reading does. Like, what if we start to read it through the lens of Nineveh? What if instead of this being the worst sermon that was ever preached, which it might have been, we see the greatest repentance ever offered, the greatest turn ever made? Like, what if there was way more to Jonah's sermon? And the Ninevites just said, we're in. Like, you're you're right. And he's like, I've got four more points about how wrong you are. And they're like, we know we're wrong. We're in. So here's the takeaway, if you just want to write this down. um, If you repent during the introduction of the message, the message will be shorter, You're welcome. This might be long. I've been on vacation, right? OK, so that's option one. Option one is it's prophetic sabotage, but option two is, is it's the Ninevites just going, "Well, yeah, you're right. We're wrong. So here's my question. Could that have actually happened? Like could a? foreign prophet stumble into the red light district of Amsterdam, give a five word you're wrong sermon, drop his mic, walk out, and have the entire district go, you're right, we repent, and our whole nation repents also. Like, could that actually happen? Yeah. Yeah, it could. Uh, Let me give you one sort of scenario like what if Jonah and I've read this in a few books and I've heard it from a few people what if Jonah is like bright white because he's covered in bile from a large fish (laughs) and he walks in and he delivers this message and they're like we are scared and we hear you right I don't know that's an option what if and and the Assyrians were spiritual people they were not followers of Yahweh but they were spiritual people so a lot of scholars who write about Jonah say, well, maybe God was sort of tilling the ground for Nineveh. Maybe, maybe there was an ecstatic sign in the sky. Maybe there was an eclipse. Maybe there was a famine. Maybe they were attacked. Maybe, and and they would have, the Assyrians would have, would have attributed all of those to signs from God. In fact, June 15th, 763 BC, there was an eclipse, Around the same time, Jonah's prophesying, probably. And so he delivers his message, maybe on the heels of this eclipse, and they go, well, sure. What's really interesting is if you read through ancient Assyrian texts, when they talk about one of these omens being declared following an eclipse, they mandate mass repentance, Including the animals are called to repent in their own texts. Is it possible? Sure. It's not only possible because of that. We've we've seen it happen before. Um, In 1907, there was a Bible conference in North Korea, and the preacher at this Bible conference spoke this word over this group of people that the way that they'd been treating the Chinese was wrong, and it landed on them with this weight. And collectively, they said, you're right. And everyone who was at this Bible conference went home, and the story goes that they started to go neighbor to neighbor to neighbor, repenting of the wrong that they had done. And it changed the spiritual landscape of that area. You could look in 1730, 1740 in the U.S. in what we would call the Great Awakening, that in our country for two decades, there was this repentance that led to life, and we saw something like this happen in our own country. See, and lean in for a moment. Will you look up at me for a moment? Anytime revival takes place, repentance always precedes it. And that's what we saw in the Great Awakening. That's what we start to see in this book of Jonah. But look at the content of this sermon with me. This is a really, really short sermon. <clears throat> Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. I mean, this isn't the kind of sermon that draws a lot of crowds, is it? I mean, this isn't the like you're a snowflake, you're create, you're unique, you're amazing, you're awesome, Jesus loves you, and all those things are true. But this isn't that sermon, is it? <laughs> this is a sermon of what we would call judgment. And judgment is just simply saying something is right and something is wrong. We we make judgments every single day. Like, we make judgments when we're writing, like do we use the Oxford comma or not? Like, you use the Oxford comma. Please, use the Oxford, get into the 21st century, okay? Um, Sorry. Um, Should the National League adopt the designated hitter? No, no, absolutely not. Um, Should you put pineapple on pizza? No, no. This is a word from the Lord. No. And it's a judgment against everybody that wants to, right? judged. Um, should God have created cats? No. No. It's a judgment. It's a, we make judgments every single day in about a myriad of different things. Um, Kelly and I were checking into different hotels during our time in Costa Rica. We, we stayed in a few different ones, and every single one of them handed us a list of rules, a list of judgments, if you will, when we checked in, things that we were and were not allowed to do. And they all had different rules. Um, some of the rules were sort of humorous Like you're not allowed to flush your toilet paper That wasn't all that humorous actually But some of them were um, some of them, like One of them was Make sure that the screen door That leads out onto your patio Or balcony remains locked At all times Because the monkeys are smart enough To get in the doors And they'll come in and eat your food If you don't lock it And I'm like, unlocked Let's see this go down, right <laughs> I want to know Here's what we didn't do. Here's what we didn't do. Here's what we didn't do. We didn't look at the rules, read them, and say this. What in the world gives you the right to tell me what to do? You know why? Because it's not my hotel. You know what? They, They are allowed to tell me what to do what I'm allowed to do while I'm there because they own the hotel. It's theirs. And you see, whoever owns the space gets to make the determination about what's right and what's wrong. And since God designed the house, he gets to decide on the rules. Since he designed the house, he gets to decide on the rules. I can say, I can say, I really want my car to run on diesel. And I can go over and I can fill up my 2008 Honda Pilot with diesel over at the gas station across the street or in our parking lot. And I can fill it up and I can get in it. And what's going to happen? Yeah, I didn't know either. It's not good though, probably, right? (laughs) It's not going to run, is it? And I can say, I really want my car to run on diesel. My car should run on diesel. But the reality is, is I didn't design my car, and I don't get to decide. It runs on unleaded. thank you, Mr. Honda. Right? I don't get to decide that. And so when God pronounces a judgment, this is right, this is wrong, against Nineveh, he does so as the owner of the house. And he gets to decide what's right because he designed it. Whoever decides gets to de- Whoever designed gets to decide. And here's what he decides. Verse 8. They get it. Nineveh gets it. What are they being judged for? Two things. Their evil and their violence. Their wickedness that we talked about in week one. And violence could, could be like social injustice. The way that they treat their neighbor the way that they take advantage of the people around them. God looks at them and says, my law is love and my gospel is peace and those are my house rules and you're not living by my house rules and you are wrong. That's the content of Jonah's sermon. And we hear a word of judgment. That's what this is. And immediately we're taken aback a little bit, aren't we? We may start to get a little bit fidgety. We may start to think, this is where I walked away from the church. Or these are the types of sermons I'm glad I didn't invite anybody to come to. Or maybe I can't believe I invited them to come (laughs) today. I started to think about judgment, and I think if I wouldn't have written my outline on a plane and had had a few more days, I think, I, I think this probably would have been my main idea, that God's judgment is not the problem, it's actually the solution. The thing that makes us go, oh, I'm not sure I like that about God, is the very thing that we want God to be. It's the very thing that we go, if we actually take time to think about it and process it, we go, oh, phew, oh, phew. But it comes at us and it feels Harsh. Let me show you verse nine of chapter three. Here's what the Ninevites say: Who knows? God may yet relent. He said he's going to overturn, but maybe he'll relent. Actually, repent would be a more accurate translation. God might repent, and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. Now, just by show of hands. Um, anybody have a tattoo of that verse? No tattoos. Anybody have a mug? <laughs> With that verse, ah, yes, yeah, the morning cup of coffee, God might turn from his fierce anger and repent. <laughs> now, we don't love those verses, do we? They make us pretty uncomfortable. I guess I'll speak more first person. They, they make me pretty uncomfortable. I mean, here's the question, right? Like, we talk about a lot about a God of love. Your love won't leave me here. All the earth will praise your name. You're, you're amazing. Every breath, yeah, all that. So, so is God a God of love or is God a God of judgment? Like, is, 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 is God, is Jesus what God is like or is God fiercely angry at the wickedness and injustice and evil that he saw in Nineveh? Which one is it? Which one is it? One of the major objections that I've heard from friends and and people that I've interacted with about God when they find out that I'm a pastor in a Christian church and it's, man, how can you believe in a God that's so judgmental? Is that is that really what Jesus was like? 2009, There was a group of An atheist group in Great Britain That pulled money and ran an ad campaign That appeared on roughly 1,000 buses Around Britain And here's what their ad said There's probably no God Now stop worrying And enjoy your life Like Jonah 3:9, This angry God Probably not there So stop worrying and enjoy your life. I mean, think of all the implications that this little tagline says. Um, One, if there is a God, you should be worried. (laughs) If there is a God, you're probably going to have a pretty hard time enjoying your life. If there isn't a God, things would be so much better. (laughs) yeah yeah they looked at it and went, Man, if God is indeed a God of judgment, we don't need him, and He probably doesn't exist anyway. so let's not live under the weight of that. let's walk in life in the at the end of January, I think it was january thirty first the story broke. The Houston Chronicle revealed that Over the last few decades, there had been just massive, massive abuse within the Catholic Church. Of priests taking advantage of kids. Primarily boys, young boys. Love or judgment. As Protestants, we don't get off the hook, you guys. They also revealed that within the Southern Baptist Church over the course of 20 years over 700 kids had come forward to say, me too. Me too. So it's a loving thing for God to do. To say, oh well. what a bummer. And man, I know that a lot of you guys have walked that road. Many in this room, I know. So the question is more personal for us, isn't it? Like, what do we do with that? Does God look at that and just go, what a bummer? Would you look at that as a parent and go, what a bummer? No, no, the truth of the matter is, friends, God is love. God has always been love. God, Jesus is what God is like. He reveals God in all of his fullness. But God's judgment does not conflict with his love. It actually reveals his love. The most unloving thing that God could do is to turn a blind eye to hurt and pain in the fracture of his creation and the good shalom that he designed us to live in. So as Eli Wiesel says, the, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And please hear me, look up at me for a moment. God is not indifferent. He's not indifferent. He is fiercely, ferociously, lovingly, for his creation. And when God speaks against Nineveh, he's doing it because he loves Nineveh and he loves the people that Nineveh is abusing. He loves them both and he knows it would be the worst thing for the Ninevites to go on living in the hell that they're creating. So he calls them out and he knows that it would be terrible for the people on the other end of the spear to continue to experience that as well. God can't ignore sin. That would be the most unloving thing He could do. He judges it because He loves. And look at me, look at me. You want a God who judges. You want a God that judges. And Jesus said, He made this really interesting statement. As He's walking to the cross, listen to what He says. John records this for us in John chapter 12. Um, We did a whole sermon on this passage, this text last year in our four days that changed the world series. If you want to hop online and watch it, I think it's Thursday. Um, That's the name of the message. But here's what it says. Now is the time for what? Judgment. On this world. What's he talking about? The cross. The cross is God's judgment. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. This is God's judgment. And Jesus says, when I'm lifted up to this earth, I will draw all people. This is God's judgment to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So God's judgment has this both like confrontational dynamic to it and comforting dynamic to it. It confronts in it drives out evil. It comforts and it draws in people. That's what God's judgment does. It's two sides of the same coin. Driving out evil, drawing in people. Love and justice. Love and justice. Same coin, two sides. And see, we can go, oh man, I'm really grateful God judges the Ninevites. And I'm really grateful God judges the, the devil, the enemy. I'm grateful he drives him out and them out. They're evil out. But God doesn't just judge the other. God judges you. God judges me. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. It actually, he judges us because he loves us. Like a surgeon coming in with a knife saying, this is going to hurt a little bit, but I want to kill the thing that's killing you. So his judgment both hurts and it heals. But it doesn't conflict with his love, friends. Please, please put that false dichotomy, that infantile thinking out of your mind. God's love is actually revealed in his judgment. It is not, does not conflict with it. Verse five. Verse five. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for the fast, for a fast to put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation that was published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water but let the men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and let them call out to almighty God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from the fierce from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Does anyone else wonder what it looks like for a cow to cry out to God? I mean, moo. I was wrong. It was non-fat milk, I admit it, right? Like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. And I don't know what the cows are on the hook for. Either. And we're inten- it's intended to be something that sort of pushes up against us a little bit and ironically makes this really, really deep point, okay? That the fracture of sin goes all the way to the very fabric and fiber of creation. So even the cows go. We're all a part of it No one is off the hook And so notice what the Ninevites do The Ninevites don't just say Oh yeah we've got to pray this prayer So that we can be accepted by God No they, they go and they start putting on sackcloth And they start putting on ashes And they change because they know That repentance that doesn't involve change Isn't repentance It's not just a cognitive thing for them It's a daily It's a life thing for them But the reality, friends, is that God's judgment does not only call something wrong. It does that. He makes a judgment. This is right. This is wrong. But it intends to bring about repentance. That's always, always, always his goal. So when Jesus steps onto the scene, the very first sermon or message that Matthew records him giving is this. Repent. Like, turn. You're going one direction. You think one thing. Turn. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. What's really interesting is that Matthew doesn't just say this is the first sermon Jesus preached. What Matthew says is this is what Jesus began to preach and never stopped. This was his message. Repent. And see, embedded within this message is is two things. One, it's this declaration hey, humanity, you've been wrong. You've been wrong about your injustices. Just go on and read the Sermon on the Mount. Humanity, which follows this declaration repent. You've been wrong about your anger. Holding on to your anger. You've been wrong to continue to hate your enemies. You've been wrong to live in the way of lust rather than the way of love. You have been wrong to live judging and pronouncing condemnation on the people around you. You have been wrong. It's a declaration. And there's an invitation. Repent. Turn. Kingdom of Heaven is here. It's here. God doesn't just call something wrong; He wants to make it right. The question is: Do we want God's right? Do we want the house rules? Do we we want to play by our own rules? No. I think my anger is justified, or the way that I spend my money—that's justified. What I do with my sexuality—that's justified. Like God, I'll take your house rules for the majority of my life, but for these portions of my life, I'm playing by my house rules. Do we want his house rules. See, there, there are some who think that God's house rules, his law is love, his gospel is peace, that God's house rules are like a straitjacket. And I want to tell you, this may be the best news you hear all day, is if you view God's law of love as a straitjacket, The most loving, beautiful news I could announce to you is you're wrong. You're wrong. Our our addictions are a straitjacket. Our anger is a straitjacket. Clinging to vain idols, that's a straitjacket. Our false selves that we need to protect at every turn, that's a straitjacket. The invitation to Jesus is an invitation to life and life abundant and life full. So here's what they do, here's what the people do, and, and, and here's, a, I'm just praying that God would stir something in us that we would do the same. It, three things that they do. Number one, the Ninevites look at the fracture of shalom their sin has caused, and they're sorrowful over it. There's this, there's this covering of sackcloth and ashes. Um, when you walked in, you got um, a little, uh, a little string of sackcloth. Do you want to pull that out for a moment? My daughter spent four hours yesterday cutting those up, so don't lose them. She'll be really offended. Don't worry, I paid her $5. (laughs) That might be injustice. I'm not sure. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. Edit that. Um, And because what I wanted you, I just wanted you to have a piece of sackcloth. Um, The reason that the king covers himself in sackcloth and sits down in ashes is because it doesn't feel good. Like, that's the point. When you cover yourself in it, you remember You remember the the wrong. You remember the hurt. It's not comfortable. Like, Lululemon's not coming out with a sackcloth line. (laughs) H&M doesn't have, like, a spring sackcloth is here. It's not, it just, it's not going to happen, okay? There's a reason for that. It's uncomfortable. So maybe you tie that around your wrist, and you enter into this, man, God, help me see the way that that my anger help me see the way that my lust help me help me see the way that my addiction to preserving me help me see the way that having to get the last word has actually fractured the good shalom that you wanted to create in my life help me see it help me see it and then for the Ninevites as we said that there's this like intentional turning. They don't just keep walking in the same direction. When we talk about spiritual practices, it's us saying, God, we believe that you're right. And we want to partner with your spirit's work in our life to walk in more freedom. I love the way that David G. Benner put it. He said this, spiritual transformation does not result from fixing our problems. Some of you need to hear that. That, That's worth the price of admission. Spiritual transformation actually results from turning to God in the midst of our problems and meeting God as we are. Your love will not leave me here. It'll meet me here, but it won't leave me here. Turning to God is the core of prayer. Turning to God in our sin and shame is the heart of spiritual transformation. So there's this like sorrow, not not condemnation, but sorrow over the way that their sin has impacted their world. And there's an intentional turning from it. And then there's this third step. Verse 10. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, say it with me, He he relented. There's this like interesting dynamic in the Hebrew. There's this word shub. Will you say that with me? Shub, that's used over and over again in the Hebrew. And it's the word relent. It just means to be walking one direction and to turn the other direction. And what the Ninevites say is maybe if we shub, God will shub. And what verse 10 says is God shubed. Like this, verse 10, is the death of the Platonic, unmoved mover, uninterested God. It's God saying, I'm not some static person in the sky that doesn't care what's going on down there. It's a God who says, I'm involved, I'm intertwined, I'm interacting, and I respond to you. And what we see is that God's intention... God's judgment isn't intended to terminate at condemnation. It never is. But to lead us to repentance. Sorry, that should have been mercy. To lead us to mercy. (laughs) I changed it because it wasn't in there, and then I got it wrong. I think I still have sand between my toes. (laughs) God's judgment isn't intended to terminate on condemnation, but it's intended to lead us to mercy. Some of you need to hear that again. That when God looks at you and says, that's wrong, that's off, his goal is not that you would be condemned. His goal is actually that you would be healed. And see, friends, mercy and grace are the very things that we know deep down our soul longs for. They're the things that we know our soul absolutely needs, but you never find mercy and grace if you don't first accept the reality that we need it. Nobody finds mercy and grace if they don't think they need it. And so we first must accept God's judgment of us that there are places in our life that we are wrong, that we would then be led to his abundant, beautiful, good mercy. See, there's this king in this passage that just echoes of a better king. I mean, look at this. this. This king, all throughout verses six through nine, the king removes his robe, his sign of royalty. He lays it aside. The king humbles himself and puts on sackcloth. It was accepting and owning the wrong that the Ninevites had done. And he lowers himself into the ashes and the dirt. He sheds his robe, he takes on the sin of the nation, and he's lowered into the dirt. Come on. Who does this remind us of? That he, being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He shed his robe. Taking on the very nature of a servant, he became obedient to death. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was clothed in sackcloth and ashes, carrying the sin of humanity, not just death, but death on a cross. And at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Yeah, he goes down into the ashes, into the dirt, and he comes up with new life in his hands. Somebody say amen. That's the good news of the gospel is that this king is the foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is God's judgment. To accept Jesus is to accept judgment and mercy and grace all in one. We are wrong and we are loved and we are redeemed and we are led and we are indwelled with the spirit that we can start to let go of the evil and the violence and the hells that are in us and be led to the life that Jesus has purchased for us. Is judgment a bad thing? No, it's actually the revelation of love. It's the call to repentance. It's the invitation to mercy. So friends, as we close our time, can I just encourage you? Whoa. For three things. Will you decide whose house you live in? god's world is this your world you want god's kingdom do you want your kingdom just be honest he knows whose house do you live in and then when you ask a really dangerous question that jesus uh, my experience has been he answers it (laughs) ask jesus where you're wrong My, my, my tendency is to be okay with God judging people like the Ninevites, but less okay with God judging me. That I have a tendency to blame others or deny or explain away or reason away. But, but in this, as we sort of process and we land the plane here, when Jesus starts to reveal, man, there's some things in your life that are just off. The way that you're spending your money, it's off. The way that you're interacting in that relationship, it's off. The things that you value, they're off. Your hate, your hypocrisy, your pride, it's off. As Jesus said, those are the types of things that create a hell on the inside and he came to get the hell out of us. Come on. Ask him where you're wrong. And may the weight of his words hit us like they hit the Ninevites. Like Jonah needs to be pursued by a storm, swallowed by a fish, vomited up onto dry land for him to say yes to God. I think the book wants to ask us, what's it going to take for you to say, I'll let the words of God hit me in the same way? Do I need the fish? Do I need the storm? Do I, do I, need, do I need the pageantry? Or will I just let the word of Jesus rest on me? And then finally, as your pastor, can I just encourage you, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like one, it's just one turn away. This is the beauty of the cross. This is the hope of redemption. You don't need to run through and jump through a bunch of hoops and do a bunch of things. It's a, it's a simple turn. And what you see is that the loving arms of God have already turned to you. My guess would be that for every single one of us, we can think of somebody that needs to hear this message. May I gently suggest to you that that somebody is actually you, that that somebody is me, and that there's some areas that Jesus wants to judge so that he might free us to move forward just want to give you a few minutes to sit with your sackcloth. <laughs> maybe just run it through your hands or you could stick it in your Bible, use it as a bookmark, as a reminder. But as you hold it, maybe just ask Jesus, Jesus, where am I wrong? Where am I off? Typically, when we ask that, the picture we get of God is of God sitting on the other side of the table with a ledger going, glad you asked, and his eyes are a little bit angry. What if you just asked Jesus, Jesus, where am I off? And then you just, invi- and, and you just envisioned him saying, come here, come here. instead of across the table, just taking his arm around you and going, Brian? I'm glad you asked. Let's talk. Let's talk.